Good morning. Welcome to Grand Rounds. I'm Kevin Curtis. I'm one of the ED docs here, and I'm incredibly honored to introduce our Grand Rounds speaker this morning, Dr. Norman Paradis. So I've been doing academic emergency medicine for about 20 years, and Dr. Paradis is one of the most or the most impressive people I've worked with. He certainly is the smartest and uh, one of the most humble, which is always a lovely combination. Um, You've, if you've seen his brief bio, I will be totally insufficient in doing any summary of that, but I'll talk a little bit about the fact that he is a world-renowned researcher. Our residents would attest to the fact that he's a very impressive educator, and those of us who still work shifts with him would say that his number one priority still is providing outstanding patient care. In terms of his uh, academic career and his research. As I said, he's, I will say, in the emergency medicine world, he's viewed as one of our pioneers in resuscitation medicine. And his, his name is hallowed at that level. He is indeed internationally renowned and respected for his work on shock and resuscitation, and that includes basic science, it includes clinical trials, it includes device development. He has uh, eight patents, and under just the heading of original research, about 50 manuscripts. And those include work that he did alongside and with Manny Rivers, resulting in his landmark article on early goal-directed therapy. He's uh, been chief medical officer for Zoll and for Biosite. And just to give you uh, a little sense of two of his recent projects, they include, one, a flow monitoring device based upon diffuse correlation spectroscopy for the early detection of shock. One of those things that I was thinking of doing at the same time, but he jumped me on that. And <laughs> looking at the efficacy of synchronizing external chest compression with residual myocardial mechanical function during PEA. So he understands these deeply. I was up late last night making sure I could pronounce them. He is uh, an editor of Cardiac Arrest, the Science and Practice of Resuscitation Medicine, which is one of BMJ's cardiology texts of the year. He's our emergency medicine research director. He's a professor of medicine at Geisel, and we're incredibly lucky to have him. And as you see today, he'll be talking about one of his many areas of expertise and interest through a lens darkly evidence-based medicine in the age of big pharma. Dr. Paradis. You're too kind. I do feel old enough, though, to, that I'm pleased people are being referred to me as a pioneer. Um, I'm going to, uh, is the volume seem right? Okay, good. Let me know if I need to speak louder or softer. 
Um, as Kevin mentioned, I am conflicted. Um, I do a fair amount of work in the private sector. But if this lecture comes off as I hope it will, I'm hoping at the end you'll say this lecture had the least conflict possible because I'm going to be relatively critical of uh, some of our colleagues in the private sector. And so conflict of interest should not be an issue today. Uh, I always start off with a warning. Uh, uh, I have an atypical uh, uh, philosophy about lectures. Um, we live in a world now of wonderfully written um, review articles, uh, podcasts that are extraordinary. So why should you come here and hear someone speak when you could be at home reading a wonderful thing and sipping Chardonnay? Um, I think the only reason to do that is if um, I try to put in front of you some stuff that um, you wouldn't be able to get in the peer-reviewed um, literature. Uh, that has a downside. Um, I'm going to go out on a limb pretty far on some of these things in an attempt to be uh, controversial and entertaining. So that means that some of what I say may be wrong. Um, in particular, I'm going to assert, for instance, that a number of syndromes have been wholly created by the marketing departments of big pharma companies. If you know those syndromes better than me um, and don't agree, feel free to throw your hand up and disagree. I'm probably going to humbly back away from what I had just said. And I should get, uh, let you know that I have a deep bias that comes through whenever people allow me to speak extemporaneously. Um, I just am a major fan of what I call the ironic good story heuristic. I actually like the word heuristic and we'll put it in even if it doesn't fit. <laughs> but if there's multiple explanations for what's going on and one of them possibly fits that pattern, I'm going to shoehorn it um, into that uh, heuristic. If the story additionally involves unintended consequences, then I simply can't resist that combination. And so uh, th this whole lecture actually um, it fits under that, that rubric, the ironic unintended consequence uh, uh, pattern. And I'll, I'll, I'm going to try and explain that to you at some length. Um, I, I, I'm also a big fan of people uh, getting up and admitting that most of what we do, somebody else actually uh, thought of or did first. So I, I want to give some credit here. Uh, ben Goldacre's book, Bad Pharma, uh, um, has almost everything that I'm going to put in front of you today and, and, and a lot more that I don't have the time for. So if, if this subject grabs you uh, and you want to go further with it, uh, this book is, is, is pretty unputdownable. And this is an immense subject. Uh, this is going to be an introduction today. What I tell people about this particular subject is that you should understand that if you took all of the resources that are applied to the execution of pivotal clinical trials, pharma spends more than that on their side of the street. And so consequently, it's as big as the world of clinical trials and maybe even um, bigger. I want to give credit to the BMJ's Invisible and Abandoned Trials Initiative. I'm actually going to show you some of their work, uh, and I bow down before them. 
if you're looking for something um, that's really unputdownable and isn't all that long and easy to read, Carl Elliott's white coat, black hat uh, goes into things uh, that I'm going to be talking about today and, and many things that, that I'm not even uh, going to get to. So what do I bring to the table? If you can just go and read Carl Elliott or Ben Goldacre, why, why listen to me here today? I have one uh, thing that they don't have, and that is uh, in, a, in an act of, um, of middle age um, uh, poor judgment, um, I headed off to the private sector for a number of years. So unlike Carl and Ben, I actually have been in the room when people were making decisions to uh, manipulate clinical trials or to design them in suboptimal ways. So at least I can give a first-person account of, of, of how some of this stuff happens. Uh, they have to study it uh, from afar. Uh, the objectives, I think, were already sent out to you, um, and so I won't go over those today. I'm basically going to try to just introduce you to the subject, convince you that it's an important subject, and try to give you a few tools uh, to, to deal with this. Uh, the tools are going to be inadequate overall because it's just a tough nut to crack. But if you walk out of here today realizing that when you look at a tier one journal article, you are looking at uh, the shadow of something and not the totality of the information that's there, then I'll at least have accomplished uh, one of my objectives. So again, I, I do want to emphasize this. Uh, I'm a bit, uh, just a, a sucker for um, irony, and I always um, mention that it's, it's the more power, most powerful force in the universe uh, above the strong and weak nuclear interactions or gravity. And so what happened, is, I'm going to posit that what happened here was the House of Medicine uh, attempted to minimize bias and improve outcomes through the force of, of evidence-based medicine and um, that provided the ironic opportunity through its complexity for the private sector to actually get more control over the process than they had previously. Previously, the solo practitioner was sitting in their office trying to digest their own experience of the medical literature. Once we set up all of the committee structures and the, and the, um, the uh, meta-analysis of evidence-based medicine, we provided many more opportunities uh, for the private sector to have their uh, input. So uh, I do want to uh, spend 30 seconds on what evidence-based medicine um, is. I, 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 here we are at Dartmouth. Uh, I don't want to spend a lot of time on this. Everyone in the room is probably uh, more expert at evidence-based medicine uh, than I am. Uh, the universe of on-point uh, randomized clinical trials is what we start with. We go through syst uh, systematic reviews. We do meta-analysis with pretty forest plots. Uh, by the way, there is no Dr. Forrest. Uh, people actually don't know where the name forest and forest plots come from. And we end up with uh, guidelines. What's not to like? Uh, I did want to show you that occasionally this works well. This is my absolute favorite evidence-based medicine um, figure of all time. It's th uh, thrombolysis for acute myocardial infarction. Uh, here's, the, here's the forest plot of all the trials. But here's what happens if you systematically uh, review them in sequence. And uh, many of you may be aware that once this was done, it, uh, the uh, authors of this paper demonstrated that we actually knew the answer to the issue of, of thrombolysis in acute myocardial infarction many, many years before it became 
uh, the standard of care. And so this is an example of evidence-based medicine working the way it's supposed to. Uh, by the way, it's not my topic for today, but that little arrow is pointing at what has become a very hot topic. Uh, if you were doing this systematically, you actually would have concluded in 69 with that study that it worked and that you had proven, um, proven that. Uh, unfortunately, that proven thing went away, right, in the next two trials. So this is the thing that John Ioannidis and his friends are working on these days, that, uh, uh, that uh, Fisher didn't want 0.05, right? And so 0.05 doesn't work. It, it, it results in a large rate of error, and that in reality, evidence-based medicine needs to move to 0.01 or 001. Once it reached there, it never came back. And that's a whole other topic for another day, the lack of reproducibility at, at 0.05. So uh, I, again, I, I, we, here we are at 8 o'clock in the morning. I do want to entertain you. So I am going to spice up the uh, talk by stealing uh, from the Isaacs article, Seven Alternatives to Evidence-Based Medicine. Uh, this is, uh, is evidence-based medicine, right? The marker is the randomized clinical trial. The measuring device is meta-analysis. The unit of measurement is odds ratios. This is evidence-based medicine, but they propose seven alternatives that are relatively entertaining. Here's uh, the first of these, uh, vehemence-based medicine. Um, the basis is vehemence. The marker is level of stridency. The measuring device is the audiometer, and the unit of measure is decibels. I think probably everyone in the room has been at some conference where this particular uh, heuristic was the one that held the day. So what am I talking about today? I, I, as I said, there's tremendous complexity because there are a lot of ways to manipulate clinical trials if you basically have unlimited resources. But at a simple level, all that's happening is you make some of the results you don't like go away. And I'm going to show you how that's, uh, it's possible to do that. So uh, there are a number of ways at a simple level. You can convert negative RCTs to positive, and I'm going to show you some examples of that. Uh, you can make a, re, re, negative ones simply disappear. That's uh, easier than, than you might imagine. And then you can bias the interpretation. That's also not the hardest thing in the world. So uh, a few examples. Uh, the relationship between drug company funding and outcomes of, of clinical psychiatric research. Um, it's going to seem like I'm ganging up on psychiatric research, um, and, and that's not my intention. It just turns out that some of the best case studies in this area have been done with, uh, with the psychiatric medications, uh, partially because of the large litigation involved, uh, resulted in all the internal documents being released. So, so we actually have a window here. So drug, oh, sorry. Uh, drug company uh, sponsorship, favorable outcome for the, for the uh, drug. You can see the effect is quite um, large here. Uh, this is usually larger than the treatment effect. Uh, if you do multivariate analysis and, and, and you look uh, at the effect of sponsorship, you will generally find that it is the single strongest predictor uh, of outcome in sponsored um, pharmaceutical research. So uh, in the table I just showed you, there was a 50% increase in the positive trials in favor of, of the company's uh, agent, but uh, not so fast. It gets better. 
uh, Bureau in 2007 did a multivariate analysis of this association and found an odds ratio for a favorable trial related to the sponsor's uh, drug uh, with, uh, of 20. An odds ratio of 20 is immense. That's obviously larger than any of the treatment effects uh, we see on a daily basis other than like the administration of oxygen in people with ventilatory failure. It's a giant effect. <laughs> but the, the beauty of it was that when they actually drilled down, what they found was the odds ratio for a favorable trial was 20, but the odds ratio of a conclusion in the abstract was 35. So it turns out that having someone ghost write the manuscript uh, for, for you can, can even fix, uh, fix uh, the, the additional um, 15 uh, odds ratio. So here's uh, Beckelman in 2003 uh, looking at financial conflict of interest and its effect. And here is their forest plot. And you can see that it kind of summates among all these different reviews with odds ratios uh, between about 5 and 10. Okay, how do you get such a large effect? Uh, the, the anecdote that I like to uh, share about this one is um, when I was off in that world, I got asked by some venture capitalists to come and educate them about um, this issue uh, because they frequently get clinical trial data put in front of them and they need to decide whether they're going to invest or not. And so I put together for them uh, a, a lecture that's much darker than the one I'm going to present to you today called um, Guide to the Dark Art, Clinical Trial Manipulation for Fun and Profit. And within a few weeks, I was getting so many requests, uh, at the time I lived in the Silicon Valley area, to give that lecture to other investors that I almost realized I could have a career path of simply giving that talk to, uh, to, in that world. So what can you do? Uh, this is a slide I stole from Guide to the Dark Art. Um, so, when you are the sponsor of a clinical trial, you get to choose the principal investigator. This is gigantic. And having been on the side of the fence in which we were interviewing investigators for our clinical trials, I can tell you that uh, when they come to meet with you, some of them will make clear that they are willing to work closely and constructively with the sponsor of the trial. You need to understand that clinical trial sites are essentially little businesses, right? They may be run in tertiary centers or academic centers, but they have to produce a bottom line margin to the institution. So it's important for there to be a pipeline of clinical trials into clinical trial sites. Uh, some investigators, uh, the Duke Clinical Research Center, for instance, when they meet with you, they let you know that they're going to take over that they're going to push you to the side and they're going to run the trial in a completely clean manner. That's one end of the spectrum. Other potential principal investors will show up and let you know that they're completely comfortable with the ghostwriters in your marketing division writing the manuscript uh, for them. And so there's a wide spectrum. So the choice of principal investigator is probably the biggest, uh, biggest decision you make when you're trying to influence a trial. You get to choose inclusion exclusion criteria endpoints, dosage, you get to use, choose your dosage and the dosage of the control agent. You get to choose the sites, the core labs, the time intervals, the toxicity. You get to choose everything uh, if you want to, to, get, to do it. And once you have your hands on these, uh, I'm going to show you some techniques you can use to basically lock in the result you want.
So uh, again, I've stolen from Dr. Smith uh, his uh, article on this subject, uh, a how-to guide, uh, had most of what I had in Guide to the Dark Art. And so I thought I'd just show you his list of things that he had personally observed uh, to have occurred. Uh, that people can conduct their trial uh, on their drug against a treatment known to be inferior. If you're a third-generation antipsychotic, why not run against a first-generation antipsychotic uh, with its known toxicities? Trial your drug against too low a dose of a competitor's drug. Conduct a trial of your drug against too high a dose. Uh, that way you can make your toxicity profile look good. Uh, conduct trials that are too small to show differences from a competitor, and thus you have a non-inferiority to them, right? Uh, use multiple endpoints in the trial and select for publication those that are favorable to results. I'm going to show you examples of that. Do multi-center trials and select for publication results from centers that are favorable. Conduct subgroup analysis and select publication for publication those that are favorable. Present results that are most likely uh, to impress, uh, for instance, reduction in, rel in relative risk versus absolute risk. That's, that's introductory statistics, so that's what you probably all knew that one already. Some of my personal favorites, though, that Dr. Smith missed. Um, I really was impressed the first time I saw this. Before, when you get to a pivotal trial, that means you went through phase one and phase two already. Phase one and phase two lets you know a lot about your drug. So what you do is you uh, ask your experts to take all the results from phase one and phase two and run a Monte Carlo simulation, where the trial is run thousands of times in a computer using different weighting of the different options, doses, sites, until they develop a pattern that is highly predictive of a positive trial. That, this is one of my favorites. Um, adjust the time intervals of study. If you know from phase one uh, uh, or phase two that efficacy peaks at three months, but toxicity uh, peaks at six months, three-month trial, right? That's no problem. Uh, de determine the performance of sites. During phase one and phase two, you will get a sense of what uh, different sites achieve in terms of their outcomes at that site. You choose the sites that are favorable to the result you want, only they get into phase three. You drop the sites that are, quote, underperforming. And one of my favorites, uh, use the DSMB to figure out what's going on. Um, I have to give credit to the FDA on this. I was actually involved in a trial uh, a year or two ago where the FDA uh, was able to realize that the de-identified tables that the Data Safety Monitoring Board were getting were actually telegraphing to the sponsor what was going on in the trial itself. It took a pretty smart person looking at a series of logic diagrams to do this. I didn't see the question. No? OK. No, I just said, wow. Yes. <laughs> Yeah, it's, it, it took a very clever person to design that, and it took an equally clever person at the FDA to see through it, because it had me totally fooled. So in 2010, Edding uh, published uh, the results of their massive effort to find all of the trials uh, uh, for raboxetine. Uh, this, where these people find the time to do this is not clear to me. For the Cochrane, the Cochrane groups will frequently do this. They will try to get all the unpublished data. And by the way, that is not easy. The FDA treats unpublished data as proprietary. They won't give it to you. The European Medicines Agency, same policy. But it turns out there are notified bodies throughout Europe 
that if you send a letter to, like uh, in Czechoslovakia, they may not be aware of the European Medicine Agency's policy and literally send you a trunk of unpublished stuff. So uh, again, I, I don't want you to think I'm ganging up on, on the psych meds, but I am going to make a recommendation. If you haven't read Steve Brill's uh, 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 magazine article on the web on risperidone, um, it's unbelievable. I started reading this article. Uh, it's one of those things on the web where he can link to the original evidence. So when he says there was an internal memo, he, you just can see the memo. So I started reading this article and uh, then looked up and, and literally eight hours had passed, uh, this article. Um, uh, it, it just turns out that Johnson & Johnson, which is clearly uh, <laughs> about as admired a, admired a company as there is in the United States, their way of developing risperidone uh, for uh, adolescent use was unbelievable. And uh, he goes through it in some detail. So I recommend that. But I do recommend you not start reading unless you have a lot of hours to, because I, I couldn't put it down. So riboxetine. I don't know if you can see this really well. The, the closed boxes were the unpublished studies. The open boxes were the published uh, studies that were available to the to the House of Medicine. Uh, this got some. This got some. This situation got summarized very very well in Scientific American. Uh, this is the uh, Psycurious column in Scientific American. The meta-analysis showed that an antidepressant raboxetine doesn't work. Not only does it not work, it really doesn't work. <laughs> and it turns out that Pfizer hadn't published data on the putative antidepressant in 74% of their patients. Um, again, uh, there's, people always tend to be critical of the government and, and, and government agencies. But if you look down here at the list of names for raboxetine, you will not see an American brand. The FDA never allowed this drug to be released in, in the United States. So uh, again, it's not news that uh, data goes missing. Uh, there's a tendency for everyone to act like they've discovered something anew today. But here's the famous uh, Sterling article from 1959 in which he showed that uh, in his literature, 99% uh, of the articles rejected the null hypothesis. And so he mentioned in 1959 that if 99% of the articles in psychology were rejecting the null hypothesis, the failed ones must have gone missing at some point. Uh, where can they go missing? Uh, here's a cartoon someone put together to show you all the steps between the initiation of a clinical trial and its actual appearance at the, uh, in the medical literature. Each one of these steps provides an opportunity to slow down or speed up or, or manipulate. So uh, I always have trouble pronouncing this one, so I'm going to skip over it. Uh, why olanzapine beats risperidone, risperidone beats uh, the one I can't pronounce, uh, why that one beats olanzapine. Um, this is a truly entertaining article, and it reflects uh, a, an interesting situation. Initially, you don't see studies like this. You see the agent against an old agent or placebo. Going against a similar generation agent from another company only happens at the end of the market cycle. But uh, here's, here's something that's a thing of beauty. Uh, in each case, when each company checked itself against the other agent, they found their agent to be generally superior, uh, more than generally, pretty 
consistently superior. But when the other company checked against the, in the other direction, they found the opposite result. And you can literally make a chain the way they did, showing that uh, the only thing that matters is the sponsor of the uh, trial. Uh, these ones over here obviously resulted in some uh, career non-enhancing um, uh, events uh, in clinical affairs at, the co at those companies. Um, so, again, I'm trying to entertain you. This is one of my favorite artifacts of all time. And if anyone can identify this, uh, feel free to throw your hand up. This is the Australia Asia Journal of uh, Bone and Joint um, uh, Medicine put out by Elsevier. Uh, we only know about this because of a litigation on Vioxx um, in Australia. It turned out this was a completely fake journal. Uh, the, the, that uh, Merck had paid Elsevier to put it out. Um, uh, some of the people that were listed on the, as reviewers on the board didn't even know their name uh, was there until this um, all was uh, revealed. They put everything in place uh, to, to um, uh, improve the sales of Fosamax. Um, I do want to share with you, uh, this man, this whole story, we look at this as a cautionary tale. They don't see it that way. Um, uh, Jer Jeremy Allen is a legend in medical marketing. He was hired by Merck to improve um, sales of Fosamax. And he realized that for every woman with osteoporosis, there were a few who just hadn't reached that stage yet. And so once the litigation and the journalists had a chance to delve deep, they found out he had actually created this disease entity, osteopenia. He had funded all of the expert panels, all of the clinical trials, all of the journal articles. And he alone was responsible for uh, increased sales uh, uh, of Fosamax in literally the billions of dollars. So here's another alternative, uh, eloquence-based medicine. Eloquence, smoothness of tongue, tephalometer, and adhesion score. <laughs> so, how else can you do this? Uh, you can prevent uh, data that you don't like from coming out. This is a relatively straightforward technique. This is the famous Drummond Rennie article. Some of you may be familiar with the story. Uh, uh, Boots Knoll did not like the results. They ran a, uh, FDA forced them to do a synthroid bioequivalence study at, standard, uh, at UCSF. They did not like the result. They were able to keep that result from coming out for nine years by simply litigating with UCSF uh, in perpetuity. So you don't want a gag clause in your clinical trial agreement. So how widespread is this? Again, this is not news. Every one of the large pharmaceutical companies have, have paid uh, sizable fines. Um, it has been pointed out by by some skeptical people, that the fines tend to be about 10% of the profits from any particular um, um, agent. And so some of the critics have said this is really just, right, it's, it's, it's a parking ticket or a toll booth or, or something like that. It's the cost of doing business. How intentional is this? And again, I can't emphasize uh, that we know a lot of this because lawyers sued and that gives them discovery. Once they get discovery, they send a discovery request to the pharma company. Five tractor trailers pull up with paperwork. 
and they then dive into it. One of the great innovations in this area was the group at UCSF set up an automated scanning software system looking for certain words like please don't tell anyone about this or something in an email. <laughs> and that way the five tractor trailers gets reduced to one tractor trailer. So here's some quotes from the GSK Seroquel litigation from emails. A positive spin on this cursed study. Lisa, company physician, has done a great smoke and mirrors job. Thus far we have buried trials 15, 31, and 56. The larger issue is how do we face the outside world when they begin to criticize us for suppressing data? See, suppressing would be probably one of the words that software package would, would look for. Um, I should mention as an aside that some methodologists feel if you've done 56 trials on, some, on a particular drug, you need to do robust correction for that, which tends not to occur because 50 of them you don't even know about. So a little bit uh, of the dark art. Make sure the evidence breaks your way. So uh, this is uh, somebody who went back and looked at the anti-inflammatory trials where they knew the, the, the equivalent doses. Eventually, people sort this out, and they figure out what an equipotential dose for the two medicines are. And you can guess when they look back about what the dosing was. Uh, the, the sponsors drug tends to be at a higher dose, and it's pretty uncommon for them to test their drug at a lower uh, equivalent dose. Uh, inadequate positive trials, publish it multiple times. This is my favorite, well, not one of my favorites. It's one of my favorites. As an emergency physician, uh, Kevin uh, will, will probably agree with me here, we use a fair amount of Zofran. So uh, somebody looked and tried to figure out the uh, duplicate publications in Zofran for post-operative uh, nausea and vomiting. And so they were able to find that nine of 84 trials were, had been duplicated. The nine duplicated trials were published surreptitiously a total of 23 times. 70% 70 70 of all RCTs were covert duplicates. 28% of all patient data were covert duplicates. And duplicate data was cited as separate RCTs by uh, other RCTs reviews and meta-analysis. What effect did this have? So it turns out, if you don't duplicate, the number needed to treat is 16 with relatively large standard deviations. But when you start duplicating the same, some of the data over and over again, you can lower that number needed to treat down into a, a much more favorable range. Okay, so you can play with start and stop. And again, I'm guessing that many people in the room are familiar. This is one of the, this is maybe the most famous one where they decided that the start-stop dates for the toxicity were not the same as for the, for the therapy. And that allowed them with Vioxx to eliminate uh, some of the cardiovascular events and move them above the, the threshold for, for significance. Uh, this is another famous one, Salmeterol, where they added six months of additional monitoring for toxicity, but they weren't monitoring during those six months. In other words, the trial was six months, but they just said six more months, so they diluted out the toxicity. This agent turned out to have some significant uh, toxicity. So uh, this, is a, this is something that is relatively complicated. I'm not actually sure I can fully explain it to you, but um, uh, people more sophisticated than myself in statistics assure me that this is correct. Early stopping. Early stopping is a problem. 
because you should be alpha spending at each one of these points. If you simply allow yourself to stop early and you don't alpha spend for that look, you can be benefiting yourself. That was the theoretical. Someone went and checked and it actually turned out that the theoretical uh, prediction was correct. Stopping uh, randomized trials early for benefit and estimation of treatment effects. 91 truncated RCTs asking 63 different questions. 424 matching non-truncated RCTs. Relative risk reduction in the truncated RCTs versus the matching, they're uh, 0.71 um, decrease in the disease of interest or the, or the, or the symptom of interest. Two, so let me back up, make sure I explain myself here. They took an RCT that was terminated early for benefit. That's as good as it gets in pharmaceuticals. And they found a matching one which was allowed to run to its end. And what they found was that there was a bias uh, in favor of the treatment effect in the truncated RCTs. It, but it gets even better. In 39 of the 63, 63 uh, cases they studied, the non-truncated RCTs failed to demonstrate significant benefit. So they actually took a, a, a clinical trial entity that was going to be negative in the untruncated, but in the truncated it was positive in uh, 39 of 63 instances. Small companies love early termination, right? Uh, within 48 hours of a positive early closure of a trial, most small uh, startup pharmaceutical companies will be purchased by a larger uh, company. Okay, so restoring the invisible and abandoned, this, this initiative, uh, I bow down before this. Where they find the time to do this, I, I don't know, because you can't apply for funding to restore an abandoned trial, but somehow they do it. And this is the famous uh, 329 trial. This is the poster child uh, for this um, effect. Uh, the 329 trial, uh, here's the original one, paroxetine in the treatment of adolescent major depression. This is the restored trial uh, in the British Medical Journal. In other words, they got a hold of the original methodology. They somehow were able to get the actual raw data and they redid the trial as per the original methodology without any data manipulation. Uh, the 329 trial was famous uh, because it, uh, Senator Grassley's office identified hidden consulting fees. I, I put a question mark here, but they were mostly in the millions of dollars to the principal investigators. These had not been reported to their university at all. Uh, they were able to determine that the manuscript was completely ghostwritten, that data manipulation real-time was occurring during the trial, post-hoc addition of secondary variables, atypical, the list went on and on and on. They basically really dug into this one. But I want to show you my favorite figure. And, and just so we're clear, we're talking about suicide by adolescence here, right? Uh, that might strike you and me as a pretty clear, serious, adverse event during a clinical trial, yet if you look at the original Keller figure and the matching figure from the BMJ, you can see that some of the suicides uh, apparently went missing uh, in the original um, article. How did they do that? When a suicide occurred, in some cases, they went back and carefully looked at that particular patient and decided that they had been non-compliant uh, to the trial. 
Obviously, this violates intention to treat, uh, uh, clearly. So, will clinicaltrials.gov um, fix this? Uh, basically, the, um, most people are not aware of this. Clinicaltrials.gov allows you to uh, upload your intention. It doesn't stop you from changing your primary endpoint. You simply have to register that you changed your primary um, endpoint. And so uh, uh, when this was checked, 31% of 90 trials had their primary outcome changed. 30% of the trials registered a start date and primary outcome changed after the start date. They were already getting data when they back, went back and changed the primary um, outcome. 30% of trials registered completion date had primary outcome changed after the trial was already done. And uh, industry funding was highly associated with the event of changing the primary outcome. Uh, this is one of my favorites because, as Kevin mentioned, I was partially involved in this. Uh, this is the surviving sepsis uh, guidelines, and uh, Zygris got a pretty quick uh, positive nod from the surviving sepsis guidelines. Um, I include this fun fact. One of my first interactions with them when I was a vice president of the company was I asked if I could come and uh, describe to them a new sepsis marker. And the Surviving Sepsis Guideline Committee said, absolutely, no problem. We can give you 15 minutes to get in front of our committee. That costs $50,000 from your company. So relationship between authors of clinical practice guidelines and the pharmaceutical industry. This is a survey. Only 52% of the people that the survey was sent to responded. Uh, I'm going to suggest that, the, that that may not be a, a completely unbiased sample uh, of who responded. So, oh, so 87% of people on guideline setting committees have a conflict of interest. On average, they average 10 conflicts of interest. Um, here's ones for uh, diabetes guidelines. Here's the percentage of people with, um, with conflicts on various guideline committees. But, but here's an even more fun fact. Here's the same guidelines committees and the percentage of them that allowed an actual employee of the company to be on the committee. Uh, a few of them had 100%. Okay, uh, mass production of systemic reviews. So this is, again, as, you, as I mentioned, I love the unintended consequence. Um, who would have thought that um, meta-analysis uh, turns out to make the kind of techniques I've been describing for you much easier? Uh, very few meta-analysis take the complete universe of all the clinical trials, right? They'll look and they'll set criteria for inclusion and exclusion of clinical trials. Well, who's funding that meta-analysis? How are those criteria being developed? It's a much easier system to manipulate than a simple, single RCT. Okay, what is to be done? Uh, I don't want to um, uh, mislead you. I'm, I'm going to give you some hints of what you might do about this problem. Uh, I'm not going to actually solve it for you here today. So. Uh, obviously, we could have a more perfect world, right? We could have some federal agency, when, when you're a pharmaceutical company and your company is ready for a, for a pivotal phase three trial, you could turn your agent over to them and they would have no conflicts of interest. Uh, this is a more perfect world, uh, not the one we live in. So uh, I did want to share with you something that I thought was interesting. I was, at, I, I was at Johns Hopkins a while back and I got the opportunity to watch one of their senior uh, pain management faculty trying to give advice to a patient. He is on all of the guideline committees and he is also a consultant 
to all the companies. So he was going through the on-point clinical trials with the patient, and he was correcting the p-value on the fly. In other words, he would say to the patient, well, this study looks pretty good, right? Sponsor had total control. Let's take off 0.049. Oh, here, they only had the principal investigated the funding sites, and so let's just correct that with 0.045. He was correcting the, the, the results of the study based on his knowledge of the conflict. Obviously, this is doable only if you're someone like that, who really knows all of that. This is not available for me and you. So a more practical approach, know when you're at risk. You're only at risk occasionally. Uh, the example I like to give residents is, we don't have to worry about local anesthetics, right? The number needed to treat is so low for local anesthetics that you don't need a, cl a clinical trial. A lot of what we do is clearly efficacious, right? But there are situations where we are at risk. And you can figure those out by opening up one of the throwaway journals and see how many glossy pages have been purchased as an ad in the middle of the journal. In my world right now, the new oral anticoagulants place me at risk of the dark art. And so I'm aware of that. Uh, this is one, <laughs> I'm, I'm sending you home with a fair amount of homework. Did anyone follow phlebanserin? Yeah, so this is, this is as good as it gets, right? And, and so this is the management team at, at Sprout Pharmaceuticals. Um, they did almost everything you could do in terms of disease mongering, and uh, they actually set up an organization called Even the Score. Multiple congressmen wrote letters to the FDA saying it wasn't fair that men had 23 uh, agents for erectile dysfunction. There are actually only five. Uh, the congressman didn't know that and that women did not have a comparable thing. So again, if you want to go home uh, uh, this weekend, pour yourself some Chardonnay, and just start reading about Sprout, uh, it's a story that is truly jaw-dropping. Uh, does anyone know the denouement on this? So they said they were using Addy to build a great company that was going to address the issue that women are underrepresented in the treatment uh, with pharmaceuticals. Uh, the day after, they um, got the FDA approval. Uh, 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 the Congress had to beat up on the FDA pretty badly to get that approval out. The went down. Yeah, the exactly, exactly. As a matter of fact, we've just seen that recently with the Duchenne drugs. It turns out you can go to Bethesda now, be on one of these committees, and the FDA staff will overrule you if congressmen have beaten up on them enough. But uh, their commitment didn't last very long. They sold uh, Sprout to Valiant the day after the panel for $1 billion. Uh, each of these managers will now go on to future careers uh, starting um, uh, uh, pharmaceutical startup companies because they're, they're very wealthy now. So uh, a personal anecdote, a year or two ago, a reporter called me up and asked if I had been at Alir when their meter was uh, uh, for INR was, was being developed, and I said, no, I hadn't been there during that time. Uh, then I got off the phone, and I said, gee, this isn't a common event for me to have a reporter call me and ask, ask such an obscure factoid. So it, it only took a few minutes of checking on the web. The Zeralto Rocket AF trial had used the Allure meter for the Warfarin group. The Allure meter was defective. It's been known to be defective. This could have just been a bad mistake that the control group got the inferior meter when the lab could have run the INR. But to me, this looked like the paw prints of the dark art.
So a few uh, extra points uh, right here at the end. Uh, I don't want to mislead you. What I put in front of you today is what we've learned from the litigation of the investigative reporters. This is not the complete universe of what's occurring here. Most of that is, is, is dark matter um, uh, to us. Uh, anyone know these quotes? Yeah, exactly, Don, Donald Rumsfeld. Anyone know um, Donald Rumsfeld's uh, uh, profession when he was not in government? Uh, pharmaceutical executive, I think someone said it. He worked in, in, at Searle. And so, I, I don't, again, I don't want to mislead you. I did, public, public companies, you can look up the compensation packages of their officers. So Dr. Jeffrey uh, Chadowitz at uh, uh, Medical Affairs at Vertex, $13 million uh, last year in compensation. They did not pay this gentleman this amount of money out of the goodness of their heart. They paid this gentleman this amount of money because they felt he brought value to their enterprise. And the value he brings is shepherding these drugs through. So if we're sitting here with our compensation packages and they're sitting there with their compensation packages, they know stuff I don't know and they know stuff you don't know. Eventually, someone will figure it out, but it'll be years from now. Uh, another entertaining article, so, uh, obviously a super famous person, David Sackett, got tired of being poor, so he set up Harlot PLC uh, as a consulting company. Uh, here's the services that Harlot will, um, will provide uh, for your company. Uh, consulting fees to experts. They'll do the disease mongering for you. Uh, they'll set up the fake patient um, adv advocacy groups like, uh, like they did with Sprout. Um, how many of you, when you visited your uh, board, noticed that the building was really, really nice? Who do you think pays for the nice building at these boards and charities? It's, it's the pharmaceutical uh, companies. Uh, this is one of my favorite, Fox Guards the Hen House. Pharmaceutical benefit managements that are actually subsidiaries of pharma. And uh, confidential information for pharmacists. Your prescription writing patterns, they know. They took that all the way to the Supreme Court because uh, the House of Medicine did not want that information made available, but they get it. So um, I'm obviously not going to give you a comprehensive solution, uh, but I do want you to be uh, relatively um, uh, sanguine uh, uh, about this situation. Some of you probably fo followed the Tamiflu. Uh, the, they, they made it their mission in life at Cochrane to get all the data for Tamiflu. And so the reason to be sanguine is there's not much you can do here. Unless you are prepared to take an effort like this, or someone else is, you're simply going to have to wait for this to get sorted out. Uh, my, one of my favorite quotes uh, from this effort was, uh, one of the studies involved 10,000 uh, case summaries. The publication was 10 pages. So one of the Cochrane reviewers said, when he went through this exercise, he realized it was a shadow of a shadow of a shadow that appears in the first-tier journal. Um, again, just to emphasize, there is a potential solution here, right? Never first, never last. Don't necessarily jump to the new agents right away. They get 17 years of patent protection, but it takes eight or nine to get through approval. So the window for them, for the dark art, 
is uh, five, six, or seven years, unless they do the new patent tricks that gets them an extra five with pediatrics or something. So the period of time in which you really need to worry about this is not forever. It's five or six uh, years. So I, I do want to finish up by saying one thing. I, um, I have actually been in the room when uh, uh, executives at companies have made the decision not to do this. So if I've left you with the impression that this is universal, it's not universal. There are definitely companies that don't do this. Uh, when you look at all the big pharma companies and say everyone are doing, is doing this, big pharma companies are really mutual funds of 20 other companies put together. One division may do this, another uh, uh, may not. So I don't want to leave you with the impression that this is, occurs every time uh, this occurs. Uh, one final one. Uh, this one, according to Isaacs, only applies to surgeons. It's confidence-based medicine. Uh, bravado, the measuring device is the sweat test, and the unit of measurement is no, um, no sweat. So, uh, Bruegel's, the fall of the Re rebel angels. Um, be happy to take any questions. I'm unlikely to be able to actually answer them. Because as I said, most of this is dark matter to me, just like it is to you. Thanks. Dr. Albert. Thank you very much. That's very interesting. The, um, I've been involved in clinical trials for decades, mainly as DSMB member. Right. And I've seen every example of what you said, and it's, it's pretty patently obvious to the DSMB. Um, but I've also seen the other side, and that is trials that were um, designed by pharmaceutical companies usually in conjunction with the FDA, it was designed in such a way that they actually lost the efficacy of the drug. A good example of that is rituximab for lupus. It's the design of the trial was so difficult to establish an, an effect of the drug that they failed. And fortunately, we can still prescribe that drug because um, uh, many other studies have confirmed its utility, but there is another side to this, and that is just bad trial design from the get-go. Yes, so Dr. Albert was pointing out that they uh, often get it wrong in the other direction. That's absolutely correct. Um, what I tell people when they ask me, they said, oh, should I be on a DSMB? Should I be on an advisory panel? That way I'll be able to influence them. Um, and what I tell them is that they see us mostly as arm candy in these circumstances, and what you're describing is pretty common. A an expert like you will try to help them, but they won't be helped. They do get it wrong uh, pretty frequently, but as I, as I think I pointed out, they can usually make those go away. So, yeah. That's really interesting work. I was asking about your comment on never first and never last. Well, I think that's very practical advice for the practicing physicians. In the academic medical side, don't we have a responsibility to look at the newest agents and see if they are what they say they are? Obviously, they're often not. Oh, oh that, I'm actually glad you asked that question because I almost was going to mention that uh, as well. You're asking about a tertiary center not, can't not, not be first. Yeah, I do think at every center like this, each department is going to have to assign someone, like the guy at Hopkins, to be totally informed, 
to go and uh, attend all the advisory panels and try and give some guidance. Because patients come here to get stuff relatively quickly. Uh, I think that you're absolutely correct. The clinician, the community can follow this, but here, someone needs to be totally up uh, on, on everything. There needs to be at least one person. Yeah. Well, I think the CEOs often don't know about this. You're asking about accountability in these circumstances. I think CEOs are mostly responsible for fundraising and board functions, and I think they're pretty careful not to exchange emails with clinical affairs uh, for that reason. And I think you're also touching on the issue. There is no account, little or no accountability here, right? Uh, only four times have executives um, um, at a pharmaceutical company been been actually criminally sent to prison. And that was Purdue Pharma for creating the opiate epidemic. Uh, most people are not aware that Purdue Pharma is owned by the Sackler family, 100%. The Sacklers have nothing to do with it. Four executives went to prison, but uh, the people who owned the company had no accountability whatsoever. All the other circumstances we're talking about uh, were handled just simply with those payments. No one is held criminally or civilly responsible as an individual. Um, uh, only recently has the Department of Justice begun to look at the possibility of, of forcing these companies to agree that they had done something wrong in the settlement, because previously all the settlements said they had also not done anything wrong. They were simply paying $2.5 billion out of the goodness of their heart or something like that. So in the future, you're going to see them actually agree that something got done wrong, but actual accountability is, is, uh, is minimal. It's very, very difficult, by the way. Most people are not aware. The Department of Justice has, um, has, a, has a tough road to hoe here. Uh, when these kind of things are going on, quite frequently, the companies will have their outside counsel sit in the room when, they, when these issues are being discussed. Thus, all of the discussions are attorney-client, and the Department of Justice can't even see them. It's very, very hard to, um, to get any accountability. Well, thank you. Thank you.